take a bit of time and, uh, and share. As you see, testimony of Israel, um, not only is it just personal testimonies, but I want to take some time tonight here just to kind of wrap things up talking about Israel. Some of you might be wondering, you know, why, why Israel? Why does anybody want to go to Israel? Is Israel still important? Are they still a, a part of God's plan? Well, I want to tell you here tonight that Israel absolutely is still a big part of God's plan. Uh, God is not done with Israel yet. And uh, they're an important part of God's plan today and in days to come. And it's quite fascinating to see such a small country, the size of New Jersey, all right, Israel, the size of New Jersey, to see a small country like this have such a target on them. And it can seem at times like the whole world is fixated on the destruction of Israel, yet this country still stands. And I believe the reason for it is because as much as people can dispute the Jewish right to this land, this land is not their land, this land is not my land, this land is God's land, and the Lord has promised this land for Israel. Look at what Ezekiel 36 verse 5 says, therefore thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its own country. See what God says there? They, they took my land for themselves. Understand something, that this is God's land. It always has been, and God's got his hand upon this land. And the animosity towards Israel and the fixation on this land is not just to provide for an alleged displaced people group. It's a spiritual battle against Israel and against the God of Israel. It says in Genesis 13, as we look at the promise of this land that God gave to Israel, Genesis 13, verse 14 and 17, and the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width. Notice this, for I give it to you. God says, I'm, I'm giving you this land. It's yours. And the promise was confirmed to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 13 and 14. I'm going to switch mics here so I don't have to hold this one. There we go. Okay. I'll use that one here now. So here's what God promised to Jacob, Genesis 28. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why are all the families of the earth gonna be blessed? Because God's gonna provide the Messiah through that line. It's not that, that Israel is so special. It's not that they are, are different or better. It's that God chose them to be the nation. He's gonna bring the Messiah through, gonna bring the preservation of scriptures 
through his word will be preserved. That's why God called them to be a holy nation separated from all other nations. It was because of what God was gonna do through them. Not because they're special, but because of God's grace. Just as none of us are saved because we're deserving or special, but by God's grace. So God's chosen this nation. God's given them a land by which they would be protected in. And notice something, this is an unconditional promise made by the Lord. See, in Abraham's day, a covenant was guaranteed by cutting animals in two, and the two people walking through those cut animals hand in hand, reciting the, the vows or the promises of this covenant that they were making. And as they walked through those sacrificed animals split in two, it was as though they were saying, if I do not uphold my end of the covenant, then let it be so to me as these sacrificed animals. But remember when God was gonna make that covenant with Abraham, Abraham was put to sleep. And when Abraham awoke, he saw the smoke coming. God had already passed through. God passed through on his own. God was the one making the covenant. It was an unconditional promise, not, not to be upheld by Abraham, but God was solely going to carry out this promise that he was gonna make them a mighty nation and give them a land and they were gonna be a special people. So what's one way that we see God at work in the world today? How, what's one big proof of the validity of scriptures today? All you need to do is look to the nation of Israel to see that God is a promise-keeping God, that what God said, God upholds. And, and the nation of Israel stands on its own as proof positive that God is true, God is real, and his word can be trusted. The survival of the Jewish people as a nation and the keeping of his promises towards them continues to reveal God's work here. Now, Israel, of course, is not perfect, and there's a price for their disobedience. First of all, we need to look back at what has happened to this nation, because the word tells us that the Israelites would be scattered for their disobedience, and they'd be forced to live in other nations. Leviticus 26, verse 33. Sorry, I put 16 up there, it's 26. It says, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Deuteronomy 28, 64, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known wood and stone. First Kings 14, verse 15, for the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land, which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they've made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And so we've seen the evidence of that, that the nation of Israel was scattered, not just once, twice, but three times. The Assyrians took them away. They came back. The Babylonians took them away. They came back. Then the Romans scattered them. And, and from there, they began to spread out among the world and to other nations. And we see the effects of that. The word tells us that their land will be desolate. It'll be bleak and barren as the rightful inhabitants of this land were scattered, the land was no longer cared for as it should have been. And so over the years after Israel scattered, that land of Israel, God's land, became a very desolate land. The land 
was under Turkish control from 1517 to 1917, under Turkish control. And Turkey destroyed the land quite thoroughly. The rulers enacted ridiculous laws. For example, one which required taxes to be paid for live trees. So what did people do? Well, we don't wanna pay taxes, we're gonna cut down all the trees. And so a number of trees were cut down so they wouldn't have to pay taxes. The country therefore ended up in a truly wretched condition. In 1866, in the land in the book, W.M. Thompson said, how melancholy is this utter desolation? Not a house, not a trace of inhabitants, not even shepherds to relieve the dull monotony. Isaiah says that Sharon, coastal area in Israel, shall be wilderness and it has become a sad and impressive reality. In 1867, Mark Twain remarked about his visit to the Holy Land in his book, The Innocents Abroad, and he lamented, saying, stirring scenes occur in the valley of Jezreel no more. There's not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for 30 miles in either direction. There are two or three small clusters of Bedouin tents, but not a single permanent habitation. One may ride 10 miles hereabouts and not see 10 human beings. Now that in itself is the fulfillment of what God said would happen to a disobedient people, that they would be scattered and the land would become desolate. That's the fulfillment of God's word. But we know that God was not done with Israel. God still had a promise for Israel that he will bring them back to the land. And beginning in the mid to late 19th century, many Jews began to return to the land. Look at what Jeremiah 23 says, verse seven to eight. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. See, in 1920, the League of Nations designated British-occupied Palestine as a homeland for the Jewish people. And in 1948, one of the greatest events that happened, Israel became a nation once again, its own independent state. And for the first time in 2,000 years, Jews could return to their own land unhindered. Since then, millions of Jewish people have returned to the land of, Jeru- uh, of Israel. And it's amazing the Lord's timing in all of that, doing such things when planes were becoming a means of transportation. Look at what's said in uh, the book from time immemorial. Nearly 50,000 Yemenites who had never seen a plane were airlifted to Israel in 1949 and 1950. Since the book of Isaiah promised, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, the Jewish community boarded the eagles contentedly to the pilot's consternation, consternation. Some of them lit a bonfire aboard to cook their food. But that was the first time some of these Jewish people had even seen an airplane. And here they are getting on an airplane to be flown back to their homeland. You see, the Lord's timing is always perfect, isn't it? So with the land once again being occupied by the Jews who are its rightful inhabitants, the land once again was beginning to be cared for and to become fruitful once again. Look what Ezekiel 36, eight to nine says, but you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches 
and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come, for indeed I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. It's amazing when you travel through Israel. And I heard this time and time again from people in our group. They're looking out as we're driving through on the bus, looking out going, I, I can't believe how lush and green everything is. Anita, how come you didn't come and share? I'm just saying you right now, you should have come and shared. But that was a comment you'd made, it wasn't it, many times, going, I can't believe how, how much is growing here and, and how lush this place is. Guess what? Mang, mang, mangoes everywhere, right? Banana plants, and, and, and again, it's a fulfillment of what God said would happen. When people come back, that the land is gonna be tilled and sown again. Isaiah 35, verse one, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Verses six to seven of that same chapter, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Again, as you travel around Israel, that's one thing that really stands out. As long as you're not around the Dead Sea, that still stays kind of barren, but that's understandable. Lowest place on earth, all right, below sea level. But um, when you travel around, you know, much of Israel, you just see the, the lushness. You see the, the palm grows, various crops and fruits are growing to where Israel's becoming one of the leading exporters of fruits and such. It's, it's no longer a, a desolate land. The Lord has done and is doing an incredible thing in their day to where people are watching and observing how is Israel in this land able to grow all these things? I mean, God has blessed his people with, with technology, uh, scientific ad advancement to where the irrigation systems they use and the different ways that they have to grow is just people are watching and observing and going, how are you doing all of this? But again, we see the Lord's hand upon this nation. The present day miracle of the nation of Israel has been unparalleled in history. You know, the Jews have maintained a national identity for 2,000 years without having a homeland. Think about that, because that's never happened. There's, there's never before been an ethnic racial group that survived outside of their country for more than 400 years. And Israel has done so for 2,000 years, maintained their historical language and identity as a people group. It's never happened before. Israel is a walking day, modern miracle. But listen, they're not out of the woods yet. <laughs> the Israelites for all of history have had to battle and fight for their existence. They've always been the scorn of the nations around it. The same is as much true today as it has been throughout history. Read Ezekiel 35, verse four to five. I shall lay your cities waste. You shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. Going down to verse nine. I will make you perpetually desolate and your cities shall be uninhabited. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to you, your anger, 
and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them, and I'll make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I've heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying they are desolate, they are given to us to consume. The Lord is speaking about nations that are looking at Israel going, oh, they're ours to devour. And God says, I'm gonna lay you waste, and I'm gonna show my might on Israel's behalf so that you know that I am the Lord. Psalm 82, or sorry, 83, verse two to five. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They've taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they've consulted together with one consent, they form a confederacy against you. So this has always been Israel's plate they've always had that target on their back where other nations are trying to take them out. Same is going on today. Nations are rising up against Israel as never before. And you see, it's not about possessing the land. It's not about trying to bring equality and, and, and bring justice to a specific people group. It's about coming against Israel for the purpose of their extermination. Make no doubt about it, my friends. As much as people might say, oh, it's just to take land that's really not theirs, that should belong to this people group. No, the purpose of other nations coming against Israel is for their extermination, plain and simple. No matter how much land has been conceded, the other side just wants Israel gone. So the survival of Israel through horrendous events such as the Holocaust and now having them reborn as a nation and coming to the land, again, only incites the anger of Israel's enemies. Arabs have been boasting for years that they will stop the Israelites from continuing on. Before the Six-Day War in 1967, President Abdel Rahman Aref of Iraq said on May 31st, 1967, the existence of Israel is an error which must be rectified. This is our opportunity to wipe out the ignominy which has been with us since 1948. Our goal is clear, he said, to wipe Israel off the map. And though these words were uttered and Israel gained a great victory in that war of 67, the feelings of hatred have remained. President Muammar Gaddafi of Libya said on November 12, 1973, the battle with Israel must be such that after it, Israel will cease to exist. More recently, George Galloway, a former Labour Party MP of Britain and married to a Palestinian said at a discussion at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies, said the suicide bombers are freedom fighters, not terrorists. I salute all the fighters and all the martyrs of Palestine. Children throwing stones and becoming suicide bombers are heroes. We must support the PLO and assist them in wiping out the Zionist entity. So that's the kind of hatred that Israel is up against. The issue is not about peace or about land distribution. The issue is and always has been about the existence of Israel. This is what Muslim nations that border Israel are teaching and are inciting this hatred against Israel. Only they're not just fighting against Israel, but they're fighting against the God of Israel. It's a losing battle. Praise the Lord for that. Israel needs our prayers, my friends. And that's why we love to go. Not just to see the land and experience the Bible coming alive is as great and wonderful and true as that is, is to go and be a support and just to let them know that 
we're for them, we're with them, we stand on their behalf. Again, Israel's not perfect. Jews aren't a part of God's plan in the sense that they're all just automatically in and going to heaven. No, they need Jesus. I mean, let's be clear about that. A Jew is not saved because they're Jews, as some people have sometimes wondered and thought. A Jew needs Jesus. But all through these events, God continues to show himself strong on Israel's behalf. And we know where all this is leading, don't we? That Israel right now is looking for a person that can come on the scene and bring about this peace. And who's that gonna be? That's what the Antichrist is gonna fulfill. When you go to Israel and you talk to people and you ask them, how are you gonna know when the Messiah comes on the scene? How are you gonna know that this person is the Messiah you're waiting for? And their answer is, he's gonna lead us in the rebuilding of our temple. And that's what they're waiting for. And that's what they have already set up, ready to go. And the Antichrist, no doubt, is gonna allow that peace treaty to come for Israel to build that temple. And they're gonna follow the wrong guy. But through that tribulation period, their eyes are gonna be open. This is the time that, again, that seven-year tribulation period that God has earmarked specifically for Israel. It's the last seven years of that 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter nine. God's gonna rapture up the church. He's gonna set the church aside. He's gonna, church is gonna be with, with Christ in heaven and God's gonna refocus his attention on Israel again. And it's gonna be a time where it's not gonna be easy for them, but it's gonna be an opportunity for them to turn, to repent, and to recognize Jesus as their true Messiah. That's when Paul says in, in Romans 10 that all Israel will be saved. It's at that time, there'll be a national repentance in that day. But they're not out of the woods yet, but God's for them, with them, and the nation of Israel clearly is a significant sign of God's might, of the validity of scripture, and the faithfulness and truth of God. Look at what Ezekiel 36, verse 22 to 24 says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in, your, in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I'll take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. It's amazing that we've been able to witness that in our generation. God's word coming alive, coming into fruition. But it's exciting to continue to see how Israel has stood strong in the midst of all nations around it. I mean, again, Israel, this small little puny nation. I mean, there's enough land all around them to help anybody that's in need of land. But everybody says, no, we want Israel's land. And yet they stood strong and they continue to exist 2,000 years as a nation, being out of their homeland and now back in their homeland. That's a testimony of, of God's faithfulness. There's no greater proof as to the accuracy and validity of scripture than the nation of Israel. 
And again, like I said, it's a nation that needs our prayers because the world spins that narrative that Israel's the problem. Israel's the aggressor. In fact, I'm gonna play a little clip for you here. It's from PragerU. I've lost my slides. Let's see if I can bring this up again. It's uh, a PragerU video, and it's um, with our good friend Stephen Harper. Um, but the beginning of the video shows the bias that you see in the media, where, again, whenever there's conflict, you'll hear in the media, oh, Israel has launched an attack, or Israel has taken out this person. What you don't hear and see in the media is that Israel's simply defending themselves. Israel's the one being attacked, and Israel's simply defending themselves. In fact, where the rockets oftentimes come from, from other nations, they launch those rockets from near schools or hospitals so that when Israel defends themselves and tries to take out those launching points, there's gonna be collateral damage. They do so purposefully to make Israel look bad. But Israel's always the one simply defending themselves, not attacking first. And so you have to be aware of the, the bias and the, the way that things get distorted where you'll hear, you know, oh, oh, Palestinians are suffering, the people over in Israel are suffering greatly because Israel is, you know, restricting them or, it's just not true. And you have to be aware of the truth and what's really happening there. So we'll play this video. Uh, it's about seven minutes and then uh, worship team, you guys can come up and get yourselves ready and we'll close with a song here. As a human, how does it feel knowing that the flights you're flying, the bombs you're dropping are killing civilians? Yes. 67 so, children died in this most recent conflict which only lasted 11 days. Even if a single child was dying, not 67, that was a sad day for me. We're not counting heads. I mean, if it's a single guy was dying, innocent guy, I was feeling that maybe there was something that I could do better. But you fight in a very, very strange situation. And you know that if they do wrong, your child may be killed because the rockets are not launched towards bases, they are launched towards civilians in purpose. And the only power you have is that you know that you do exactly the opposite. You go with the jet to shoot against terrorists. I mean, as a father, you know, when you see on the news images of parents dragging out their children from rubble, from bombs that you've dropped on them, do you take responsibility for their deaths? Well, responsibility is a big word. But remember, at the end of the day, our mission is to defend Israeli citizens. And as long as rockets are being shooted from Gaza Strip towards Israeli citizens, we have no other option as an IDF. How much of the munitions that you're using or the jets that you're flying are made in America? Oh, so most of them are made. In, in this operation, most of the things that we used are made in the United States. How much cooperation is there between the US Air Force and the Israeli Air Force? A lot. With CENTCOM and uh, UCOM and AFCOM, we, we share a lot of things together, practice together. 
So they're share. a pretty crucial partner yes, in all of this? Yes, definitely. The, we are the only democracy in the Middle East. We are the only one. I think this is the major interest of the United States in Israel. Mm. Generally speaking, I think we share the same kind of values. When I was the Prime Minister of Canada, I was often asked this question, why do you support Israel? My response in effect was always the same. Why wouldn't I support Israel? Why wouldn't I support a fellow democratic nation where open elections, free speech, and religious tolerance are the everyday norm? Why wouldn't I support a country with a vibrant free press and an independent judiciary? Why wouldn't I support a valuable trading partner and a wellspring of amazing technological innovation? Why wouldn't I support our most critical ally in the Middle East and in the international struggle against terrorism? In a rational world, in a world where simple common sense prevailed, the question, why do you support Israel, would be like asking, why do you support Australia or Canada? But we don't live in that rational common sense world. So the case for Israel has to be made over and over. I, for one, am happy to make it. Let me start with this. Every military action Israel has ever taken has been to protect itself. Israel is not an aggressor state. It's a defensive state. This has been true from its founding to this day. As a fledgling nation in 1948, Israel was immediately attacked by its Arab neighbors. Their goal was not to contain the tiny new country. It was to annihilate it. No nation came to Israel's aid. Not the United States, not my country, Canada, not the United Kingdom, no one. They all thought Israel would lose, but it didn't lose, it won. In 1967, Israel's neighbors again sought to utterly destroy the Jewish state, a nation that had then existed for two decades. Again, Israel prevailed, and it survived another all-out attack in 1973. Those are the big wars, but I'm not sure there's been a single day in Israel's entire history when some act of terror has not been waged against it, inside or outside its borders. There have been two bloody waves of terror, so-called intifadas, in the late 1980s and the early 2000s, when Israelis were blown up on buses, at pizza parlors, and celebrating weddings. There have been incursions from terror groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon. There have been thousands of rocket attacks from Hamas in the Gaza Strip, even after Israel completely withdrew from that territory in 2005. In between the wars, in between the terror, Israel has sought peace with its neighbors, and it has achieved peace treaties, with Egypt and Jordan. For others, however, every Israeli gesture for peace is met with incitement and violence. I recount this history for one reason. Any nation that has endured what Israel has endured could easily have become a police state. But through it all, Israel has never abandoned its commitment to the rule of law, to democracy, to tolerance. One-fifth of its citizens are Muslim. They enjoy the same rights as Jewish citizens. They occupy key positions in the nation's courts, press, and government. And they have their own parties representing them in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. To say that Muslims in Israel are the freest Muslims in the region is an understatement. How about this as a human rights test? Prisoners in Israel, be they Jewish or Arab, are well-treated, well-fed, and have access to the best possible medical care. Parents and spouses of these prisoners know where they are and that they are safe. Who else in the region but Israel can make that claim? Through all the wars and all the terror, 
Israel has survived, and especially in the last 20 years, it has thrived. It's known as Startup Nation, and with good reason. Key components of your cell phone and your laptop were designed in Israel. A drug or a medical device that has saved your life or the life of a loved one may have been developed in Israel. Yet there are leftist politicians, activists, artists, academics, and college students who devote their lives to denouncing Israel, calling for boycotts, demanding it be cut off from academic and professional societies. Do they denounce the Palestinian leadership that hasn't held an election in well over a decade? Do they denounce the leadership of Hamas, who use women and children as human shields to protect their fighters? No, they denounce free, vibrant, democratic, innovative Israel. With all the brutal and violent regimes, not only in the Middle East, but around the world, how is one to explain singling out Israel for condemnation? Sadly, only one explanation fits, anti-Semitism. Do these haters of Israel question the legitimacy of any other democratic nation, of any nation for that matter? Of course, the answer is no. Somehow, they only managed to oppose the Jewish one. The state of Israel has now existed for 70 years. It is one of the freest, most prosperous, most successful nations on earth. Why do I support Israel? Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't anyone? I'm Stephen Harper, 22nd Prime Minister of Canada for Prager University.